We're in Genesis 42 tonight for our time in the Bible. And let's again just ask God to anoint His Word. So Father, we just thank You, Lord, for, uh, for the truth of, of the Scripture. And we thank You, Lord, for the way You make Yourself known uh, and the way You make it known that You're aware of where we're at. And so tonight, Lord, as we're at this place, we ask that You would speak to us here. We pray, Lord, that you would take up our personal set of circumstances, whatever they might be, that you'd help us to see them clearly through the lens of your word and of your truth, and that through it, Lord, you'd give us hope, you'd give us direction, you'd give us inspiration, that you'd give us wisdom, Lord, and above all, that you'd give us joy in the midst of it, no matter how uh, difficult it might be, Lord. So we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see you tonight, Lord. So be in this place. Fill us with your spirit. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, we ask. Amen. I noticed that tonight uh, there are some new faces, probably because uh, you're back for Awana or you were away for the summer. Um, we're in the middle right now of a study of the life of Joseph as we make our way through uh, the book of Genesis from beginning to end. Uh, where we find ourselves tonight, in the middle of chapter 42, we're, we're looking tonight, kind of taking a pause uh, from Joseph personally, and tonight's story really focuses around the man Jacob, who was the father of Joseph. And so uh, we know that Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham, uh, we know that he had 12 sons uh, from four different women, a very complicated situation uh, that he found himself kind of in, that he didn't really choose, but that kind of fell upon him in a sense uh, and so by four different women, he has these 12 uh, sons, and um, one of those sons was the son of his favorite wife, the one that he wanted to marry, and he finally does end up with her uh, through all the complications of things. Um, but that one son, Joseph, uh, had 10 brothers, half-brothers, that were extremely jealous of his position and, and the affection that their father had toward him. So in their jealousy, these 10 brothers uh, kind of get him alone, and then they sell him to Ishmaelite slave traders, and then they lie to their father and tell him that he was killed. He was slain by some wild beast. And they kind of, in their own uh, thoughts, they rid him uh, from their lives and from their presence, and Joseph is carried off down into Egypt. And in the process of God's hand with the man Joseph... He goes from uh, a slave to a prisoner, and then he's exalted to become the prime minister. And it's an amazing story of how God can bring beauty from ashes. And he raises this man, Joseph, up, and he not only becomes the prime minister, but in a practical sense, he became the savior of Egypt because of uh, what God showed him in terms of the famine that was, was to come and then the solution to how to provide ahead of time so that during the famine, the people wouldn't all starve to death. And so Joseph is exalted into this amazing position. But then God, because God doesn't let anybody get away with things like what his brothers did, God brings this famine upon the land of Egypt and forces, essentially, these ten brothers to come down to Egypt now to buy food in order to provide for their families and their household that is starving to death uh, back up in the land of Canaan. And so these ten brothers come down, and they stand before Joseph, only they don't know that it's Joseph. And they bow down, and they do reverence to him, and as Joseph recognizes that these are his ten brothers, he accuses them of being spies of espionage, that they've come in. He knows that they're not, but he's going to begin to play this thing, and he wants some information. He wants some answers himself. And so he accuses them of espionage. He has them arrested and interrogated. And in the process of the interrogation, he learns from them that Benjamin, who is Joseph's blood brother, son of the same woman, Rachel, that he is alive back up with Jacob in Canaan. He did not come with them. And so Joseph, wanting to find out, first of all, if these guys are changed, are these the same jerks, essentially, that sold me into slavery? He wants to know if they're changed, and he also wants to know if Benjamin is okay. So what he does is he keeps one of the brothers, Simeon, and he locks him up in prison. And then he basically tells the other nine, go back home 
and bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, down here. And when I see him, then I'll know that you're not spies. And I'll let your brother Simeon go. So if you ever want to see your brother Simeon again, then you must bring Benjamin down here. Well, in the course of all this, the brothers begin to have a conversation in their Hebrew language. And they don't know that Joseph understands. And they begin to say that this has all happened to us because of what we did to Joseph. God is repaying this. And now all of this chaos and trouble is on us because of what we did. And we had no sympathy when we heard the anguish of his soul. And Joseph hears this. He ducks behind a wall and he breaks down weeping, hearing what's going on, that conviction is coming into the hearts uh, of these brothers. And so he, he essentially gives them food in order to go back and, and provide for their families. And then he puts the money that they brought to buy the food in the sacks with the grain, and then he sends them on their way. And that's where we pick up in the uh, text tonight in verse 25 of chapter 42. And it says there, it says that then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way. And thus he did unto them. So he does over and above what is necessary in just showing kindness to them, an act of, uh, of favor and of kindness. And it says that they laded their asses with the corn and they departed thence. And as one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the inn, he espied his money, for behold, it was in his sack's mouth. And he said unto his brothers, my money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, what is this that God has done unto us? Now, you know that's a guilty conscience, right? When someone finds a big stack of money in their, in their food bag, so now they have food and a big wad of cash, and they immediately think, oh no, this is God trying to get me. You know that person has a guilty conscience. There's a proverb that says that the righteous, I'm sorry, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. In other words, everything that happens, well, what, what, who, what, why are you asking me that? Well, you know, you see a cop behind you and you're like, what did I do? I didn't do anything wrong, you know. And, and that's a guilty conscience. And these guys have that. They can't even enjoy the grace that's being given by Joseph. And it says in verse 29 that when they came now to Jacob their father, unto the land of Canaan, and they told him all that befell unto them. And they said that the man who is the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us, for he took us as spies of the country. And we said unto him, to Joseph, that we are true men. We're not spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is not. The youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the country, said unto us, Hereby shall I know that you are true men. This is how you can prove yourselves. Acquit yourselves. Leave one of your brethren here with me, Simeon, and take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother unto me. Then shall I know that you are not spies, but that you are true men, and so will I deliver you your brother, and you shall traffic in the land. In other words, you'll have a free pass then to buy here, to sell here. You'll, you'll be granted a visa, in a sense, and you can trade in the land if you, if you do this thing. And so verse 35, they, they finish this report now unto Jacob, and now Jacob's response. It says that it came to pass as they emptied their sacks, that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said unto them, and this is our verse tonight. This is where we'll, we'll concentrate for our, our, our thought or our theme. He says, me, you have bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and you will take Benjamin away all these things are against me. So Jacob now has this moment of frustration that comes upon him as he realizes all the things that have happened to him in his history, everything leading up to this point. 
And now being confronted with this set of circumstances that are before him, he is overwhelmed with frustration and grief and doubt, and he makes a declaration, an interpretation of all the things that are going on, and it comes out of his mouth in the words that all these things are against me. It's all supernaturally bad. The circumstances have gone beyond redeemable. There's nothing good that could come out of the situation. No matter how events turn around, everything is altogether against me. He is saying essentially what he's feeling inside is that at no point can any good come from the situation that I'm in. He is coming to the realization that there is no return on my investment, ROI, for those of you investors. There is no return on my investment that can make it worth it to have paid the price that I have paid to be where I am at this point. Another way he might be thinking it is that the investment of my life in giving it to God has now gone so bad that it's at crisis mode. He's also saying that to give my life to God the way that I did so long ago, thinking that that was the way to go, that that was a bad idea. That I would have been better off in my life today if I had never given my life to God way back then. Because ever since I did that, everything has just gone against me. And somewhere in Jacob's mind, as he's assessing all of these things, and he's allowing the emotion of it to bubble over into these words, he is somewhere inside thinking that if he could go back in time to that day when before Esau, he said, sell me your birthright. He's thinking to himself, if I could go back and do that again, I would just spit in the stew and I would give it to him for free. Because what good has this birthright, this desire to be blessed by God, to be used of God, what good has this done for me? Esau is down in Edom making money hand over fist. Everything is going well for him. His family is prospering. He's got no problems. And here I desire to serve God, to know God, to honor God. And my life is a complete and absolute mess. Everything is going wrong within my life. When Jacob thinks about the history that has brought him to this point, he thinks of the fact that Rachel is now dead. The one wife that he wanted is now gone. She's not on the scene anymore. He looks around at the boys that are talking to him at this, at this moment, this juncture, and he sees nothing but dysfunction. It's pure dysfunction his family has been completely. His oldest son, Reuben, had an affair with one of his wives. And he's looking at this man, Reuben, who, and he realizes that this is the reality in his life. He looks the other way, and he sees Judah. And Judah had just gone so far off the deep end that he was just literally marrying Canaanites and just messing around with all the women of the land and hiring prostitutes and shaming the family name through his behavior. He looks at his own leg and he realizes that he's a cripple, that there's nothing that he can do about it because the muscle in his hip has shrunk and he limps everywhere he goes, so his health is completely failing. He thinks about his son Joseph, who was the favorite, who was given the coat of many colors, and in Jacob's mind, Joseph is dead. He's gone. Lost him. That's it. And now there's a famine. Everything that I have worked for, everything that I've built up in my life, all of my provision, I'm watching it disappear before my eyes. With every passing day, another part of the flock dies. We're waning away. We're hungry. We're miserable. And now, as I consider the current circumstances, I've lost Simeon, another one of my sons. That might not be so bad. If you know who Simeon is, you know, uh, but we could, we could let him go. But Simeon is gone. We've lost the privilege of trading in Egypt, so I have no favor with the one place that I could have gotten food, and now they want Benjamin, the only thing in this world that's of any value to me at all. They want him as collateral to get the one son I don't want back. And as he just thinks about all of these things, he makes this statement. And that statement then leads him to make a decision. And the decision is given to us in verses 37 and 38. It says that Reuben spoke to his father. So this oldest son. 
saying, slay my two sons if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him, that is Benjamin, into my hand and I will bring him to you again. I've got an idea, dad, Reuben says. Give me Benjamin to bring down there. And if I don't bring Simeon and Benjamin home, you can kill two of your grandkids. This is a great idea. You know, I don't know, I don't know if, if Reuben is thinking real logically here, but I don't know if any of you would do that. Would you kill your two grandsons if one of your sons disappointed you and uh, not fulfilling something that he promised? You know, real great idea, Reuben. And, and, and Jacob now declares, he says in verse 38, and he said, my son, Benjamin, shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in which you go, then you shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. The one thing I have left in my life right now that is at all a bright spot is this young son of mine, Benjamin. And if something were to happen to him, then I've got absolutely no reason to live. I'll die as an old man in complete grief. Everything is against me. My entire life is waning away before my very eyes. Now, I just want to ask you tonight, if you have ever had a moment or a season or a time in your life when you could maybe relate a little bit to the way that Jacob is feeling here in this text. Where you look at the things that have happened in your life leading up to whatever point or moment that was, that moment might even be right now. And as you look at the whole thing, you see nothing but loss, you see tragedy, you see grief, you see dysfunction, you see loss. Everything is just like... Not good. And then you look at the current circumstances and the way things look today, if you were to forecast a little bit into the future, you would think things ain't looking any better. <laughs> With each passing day, things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And you think to yourself, I want to serve God. I've given my life to him. No, I'm not perfect. But where I can, I repent. I've sought his leading in my life. Yes, I've made mistakes. But I want to serve the Lord, and yet when I think about all these things, it's just chaos. My past, leading up to this point, a mess. My marriage, the person that I'm married to, I'm married to a partner, and this marriage has never been right. That's what Jacob is feeling in his situation. As he looks at three women, he's like, how did I get these women? Where did they come from? You know, I didn't ask for any of them, and here they are. He looks at his family, dysfunction, conflict, rebellion, mutiny. Maybe you can think the same thing. I look at my family. In society, Jacob's reputation ruined because of what his sons did up in Shechem. Not his fault, but now everybody hates Jacob because of what his family did. Physically, you find yourself walking with a limp. You're debilitated beyond your years. In your industry or your business or for your providence, you see that you're just losing and losing and losing. And sometimes even in the cynicalness of it all, you think, well, why don't I just burn it and we can accomplish this a whole lot faster, you know. And then every time you find yourself, every time the phone rings, instead of, you know, hopeful curiosity, you find yourself having a panic attack. Who is it? What happened? What, you know, every time you go to the mailbox, you hold your breath before you look at, well, you know, what, what is this? Is there a subpoena? Is there a, a, a bill? Some, what do they want from me? You know, and life has just become this thing where there's a problem everywhere you look, the past, the present, and the future. And, and, and sometimes we go through seasons like that, even as the people of God. And it's just a reality. We go through seasons like this. We actually have a name for it. You know what we call it? Adulthood. <laughs> it's part of adulthood, is that we go through times where everything just looks really bad and we feel like everything is against us. Now, I submit to you that none of us here tonight have it as bad as Jacob did at this point. And we can be tempted to come down hard on him for making this statement because we know the end of the story, you know. But does anybody here have it as bad as he did at this point right now? Really? Really? You know? <laughs> this message is for you. This is your message tonight. You can get, pick up a copy of it in the back, you know. None of us here have it as bad as Jacob did. But Jacob made essentially three mistakes in this passage, in this segment of his life that we can learn from. Uh, three things that cost him in a way that it need not cost us. 
three errors, if you would. And if you're taking note, you can write these down. The first error that jo Jacob made in this study is that he misinterpreted the circumstances. He saw everything that happened and was happening, and he allowed those things to be interpreted in a particular way, and his interpretation was dead wrong. His interpretation was that all these things are against me. And essentially what he was saying in by saying that is he was saying that God doesn't care, God doesn't know, God doesn't see, God doesn't like me. That God is doing all of these things and that God himself is against me. He allowed the circumstances to speak something to him that was not true, and he believed it. He thought, I am cursed. God is absolutely not for me in this. Now, what's the truth about the things that were going on in Jacob's life at this point? Because Jacob believes a lie, but there were actual truths connected to the things that were going on. So what was the truth about Jacob's situation? First of all, is that the things... That, are, that Jacob thinks are against him, are actually not as bad as Jacob thinks. They're not as bad as Jacob thinks. See, he thinks that Joseph is dead when in fact Joseph is actually alive. He thinks this famine is going to choke them out when in fact at this moment he's just been given a massive provision of food. There's an abundance of grain on his table. Not only that, but the money that he had to let go of in order to acquire this food was given back to him. And so he lost nothing in order to obtain all this. He's been provided for. And at this point, he has Benjamin. And so in this moment, when Jacob forecasts the future, the truth and reality of the situation is that things aren't really as bad as he thinks at this moment. He's living in a future that hasn't happened yet. And that actually won't come to pass. You know what's amazing is that most of the things that we worry about as human beings, especially as Christians, most of the things that we stay up at night thinking about, worried about, most of those things never come to pass. Isn't it true? I mean, think about the things that have, in your past, really, really burdened and laid on you, like problems, issues that weren't going to happen. Most of the time, those things just don't happen. And what can happen is when we allow our fear of the future to govern us, we become blind to the present reality. And it's always true at any given moment that things aren't as bad as we think when our heart and our mindset is that all these things are against me. The reality is not what we think about the future, but what is actually true today. And for Jacob, things weren't as bad as that he actually thought. What's also true about this situation is that the things that Jacob thinks are against him are actually working in his favor. Ironically, this entire situation, the entire famine, the whole interaction between Jacob's sons and Joseph, all of these things are actually working for Jacob. Jacob is the reason why all of these things are happening. And it's God's favor and blessing on Jacob that is causing all of these things to happen. This whole famine that Jacob is so uptight about is all about him, his kids, his future, and his legacy. Everything that will be for him. And I ask you this question tonight, just in, 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 in considering uh, the fact that these circumstances were the exact opposite of what Jacob thought they were. Let me ask you this. Would you trade a guarantee? In other words, you get a guarantee from God. He comes and he personally guarantees you that your life and all the things that happen in your life are unto your future security, the blessing of your posterity, that is your offspring, your kids and their future, that they're happening for your prosperity and provision, and ultimately for your legacy, that is, the mark that you leave on this world when you say goodbye. That all of those things are a part of the circumstances that you're going through right now, and I guarantee you that it's all working together for your good. Now, if you had that guarantee, would you trade that today, give it away, in order to have immediate relief of the difficulty of your present circumstances? 
In other words, whatever it is. You're having a problem in your marriage? Right now, you give away that guarantee that it's working together for your good. And right now, tonight, you go home and your marriage just is healed. You have this blissful marriage. Would you make that trade? Uh, you don't know for sure if it's going to work out well with your kids or if you're ever going to discover your purpose for your life. You don't have that anymore, but you have the thing you wanted, the job that you wanted or the provision that you were waiting upon or whatever it is that you were seeking, worried about. Would you trade the guarantee of God for immediate relief in your circumstances. Here's the reality. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, gives a broad promise to every single one of us. It says that we know that God is working all things together for good to those that love Him and that are called according to His purpose. Now that is absolutely true of Jacob's situation right now, but to him it looks way worse. The truth of the matter is that the things that he thinks are against him are actually working in his favor. It's also true that the things that are against him in his mind are happening purposefully to get him into the center of God's plan for him and his future. We've talked about Jeremiah 29.11, that promise God gives, where he says that he knows the thoughts that he has towards you, thoughts of peace and not for evil, to bring you to an expected end. God has an expected end for jo Jacob, something that he prophesied way long ago that his people would end up down in Egypt. And this famine and these circumstances are all about setting him up in the place where he will be ultimately provided for. Now, we have expectations. We have desires. We have things that we want to see happen in our own lives. But ultimately, it's God who holds the script of what ultimately happens to us. And this tragedy that Jacob thinks is happening is actually the purpose of God to get him where he needs to be. And then finally, it's also true that the things Jacob thinks are against him are not, in fact, that God is against him or that God doesn't love him or doesn't care or doesn't see. But the truth of the matter is that God loves Jacob. Twice, in fact, in the Bible, it says specifically, once in Hosea and once in Romans, that God singles Jacob out and he says, Jacob, have I loved? God doesn't do that with every Bible character. Now, we know that God is love, and we know that God loves his people. That's a principle, and it's true, and it's universal. God loves his people. But twice in the Bible, he makes it known that he loves Jacob. So when Jacob thinks that he's cursed, the reality is that he is loved, and that God is in the process through all of these things of bringing Jacob answers and revealing God's purpose for his life. He's also resolving family issues with his son underneath the surface. God is doing a whole bunch of things that Jacob has no idea what it is. In fact, God is actually saving Jacob through this famine in this set of circumstances. Think about it. Because if these guys don't go down to Egypt, what happens to Jacob? He dies. Everybody dies. So God is actually saving Jacob through the circumstances that he's facing. All that to say is that Jacob looks at all of this and he gives a completely wrong interpretation of the situation that he's in. Now, for you and I, we have a tendency, I know I do, to do the same thing. When things aren't going the way that I think or the way that I like, I think, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why do you hate me? What did I do wrong? Why are you cursing me? Why, are you trying to kill me? Like, what is, where does this end, you know? So what's the solution when things are caving in around us and we feel like everything's against us? The answer is very simple. Not simplistic. <laughs> very simple, though, is that we're called to have faith. Faith in what? Faith in a God who does not change, who gives his promise to us, and that has never failed in keeping those promises. He says that he's for you and not against you. He says he's going to bring you to an expected end. He says that he that started a good work in you, that he's going to carry it unto completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He says that you and I are more than conquerors through him that loved us. He tells us that he's working all things together for the good, and he tells us that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. And in our circumstances, we can either choose to believe what God says about us and about the things we're going through, or we can choose to doubt and despair in the face of those things. The choice is with us, but God says that he doesn't change. And we can either believe the circumstances and what they say, 
Or we can believe what God says and we can rejoice. You can always believe that you're the exception. You're the first person in all of history that you've given your life to Christ, you've repented of your sins, you've been born again, and God has dropped the ball with you. He has kept it for all of humanity, but you're the exception of it. The second error that Jacob makes in the midst of this is that he blames others for what God is doing. Big mistake. He plays the victim card. Three times in this whole ordeal, Jacob is going to blame his sons and others for the circumstances that he's in. He does it in verse 36 when he says, Me, you have bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, Simeon is not, and you will take Benjamin away. He does it again in verse 38. When he says, then you, at the end of the verse, shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. And then he does it in the next chapter, chapter 43, verse 6, when he says to them, why did you deal so ill with me and tell the man that you had yet a brother? He's blaming them for the set of circumstances that he finds himself in, playing the victim. Now, what we learn from the Bible, the Bible teaches us from the beginning to the end, is that the things that happen to us as God's people are not the devil's fault, they're not the world's fault, they're not your parents' fault, they're not the fall's fault. God, when he buys your life, he buys ownership of all of the circumstances, past, present, and future. And thus one day, you and I, we're going to stand before God, and we're going to have to deal with the fact that God owns the circumstances. So when we say, God, I've got a question for you. Why did you allow this to happen to me? And he's going to say, I didn't allow that to happen to you. I did it. Because he takes ownership of the things that happen to us. And he calls us in the midst of us to believe that he's going to turn those things around and use them for our good and for his glory. The thing I'm so impressed about Job, you guys know who Job is, the man who lost it all, and we don't have time to paint that picture and develop it, you know. but he lost it all, and he had a lot to lose. Never once in all of his complaining, and it was rightful complaining in the sense of you and I wouldn't do any better, he never once blames another human being. He, he credits God for all of it. He gives God the ownership, and God takes the ownership of it. It was God that did it. And the things that happen to us, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, God's the one that did it. What you're in right now, God did it. But here's what you and I are, 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 are given. We have this amazing privilege and responsibility that we are guardians, stewards of God's reputation. And when we begin to play the victim and we begin to blame other people or other outside things for the things that are happening to us in our lives, we're dishonoring God's reputation. What God calls us to do in the whole thing is to not say that this is unfair or this is unjust, but we're to say, I just don't see the end of the story yet. Now, you might not see the end of your individual story, but God gives us the end of the script. If you read in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, which you know the book of Revelation, that's the end of the story. Chapter 19, the very end of the book. Everybody who will be in heaven is in heaven, which means you and I, if you've put your faith in Christ, are there in this scene. And it tells us there that when we are before him and everything is done, destinies are sealed, decisions have been made, judgments have been declared, it says that after these things I heard a great voice of many people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, honor, and power unto the Lord our God. This is us speaking. You're going to say these words. Listen. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he has judged. And then it goes on to talk about the, the, the world and all of its system. But did you hear what we say? Did you hear what is scripted? The words that will come out of your mouth and mine at the end? Is that we will see him. We will be in his presence. We will have a full knowledge of everything that happened to us and why and how it fits into the grand scheme of both our lives and God's greater plan. And when we look at all of it and examine all of it and see him there, the declaration out of our own mouth will be true and righteous. That means fair and perfectly right are your decisions, O God. Or, to say it another way, we'll be saying to him that if I knew what you knew, I would have done the exact same thing that you did. 
will be amening and affirming the decisions that God makes. Now, that doesn't mean that the situation and the circumstances that we're in today make sense to us or are they pleasant or agreeable to us. We might not like the things that we're going to. But we're not called to make assessments and decisions and assign blame based upon where we find ourselves today. But rather, we're to say, I don't see the end of the story yet, but I choose in the middle of all this to trust God. I have read the end of the script. There's a great passage, Romans chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul is talking about our position in Jesus Christ. And he says these words, listen carefully to it. He says, therefore, being justified by faith, that means that we're declared righteous before God. It says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I'm good with all that so far. Peace with God, I love it. Access to God, I love it. Rejoicing because of his grace, standing before him in his glory. Oh, I love it. Oh, Lord, thank you for saving me. Then verse 3. And it says, and not only that, oh, it gets better. It says, but we glory in tribulations also. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. No, you got that one. No, we don't glory in tribulations. We run from tribulations. We hate tribulations. No, no, we glory in tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation works patience. Patience experience and experience hope. And listen, and hope makes not ashamed. I want you to mark that, at least in your mind, if not in your Bible. That hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now follow the progression of Paul's thoughts here and how he applies them to to our trials and our troubles. He says that tribulation can and should, for the believer, result in joy. We should rejoice. Why? Because if we endure through those tribulations long enough, we're going to see the other side and realize that God was working those things out for our better good than what we could have done for ourselves. And in that, it's going to give us experience that we can tap into next time we go through a trial. Oh, I went through a trial before and I was tempted to doubt God. And I did doubt God, and I did play the victim, and I did say all these things are against me. But then I ate my words when I saw what God was doing, and I came out on the other side. Now I'm going into a new trial, and I have the same opportunity and options that I did before. I can play the victim, I can complain, or I can say no. Instead, I'm going to do something different. Four-letter word, I'm going to hope. I'm going to put my hope in God in this, and I'm going to wait and see what the outcome is experience has now worked hope and now listen watch this and hope doesn't make ashamed when do we do things that we're ashamed of when we doubt god you're bitter why did i give my life to you and god this is not fair and you know and we complain and we gripe and we complain to others about the things that we go through and then god comes through and we go oh That's what you were doing. That's why you allowed that. That's what that was for. That's what came of it that I could never see or understand. And so we glory in tribulations because we realize that these things are not our end, but these things are our glory. God is working for us in these things. He's not actually against us. We're not to play the victim, but rather what we are to do when we're in these situations is that we are to accept the circumstances that God has placed us in. That's hard, isn't it? We're to accept the circumstances that God has placed us in. We're to receive suffering as the will of God in our lives when it comes. Now, it's not realistic nor right for us to think that we're going to go through our life in this world as Christians and not suffer a little or suffer sometimes. Listen to what Peter writes to us concerning this. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. He says, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God endures grief, suffering wrongfully. In other words, you're going through things you don't know why, and they, in your mind, are undeserved. For what glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, and you take it patiently, then this is acceptable with God. Now, here's the rationale that we're to carry with us into our trials. Verse 21. For even hereunto were you called, 
Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who, Jesus, did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. In other words, Jesus didn't sin that caused his suffering, nor did he complain when he was in it. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not. He didn't say, God, if you don't take this trial away, then I'm not going to follow you anymore. He didn't do that. But he committed himself to him that judges righteously. In other words, he made the decision, as an example to you and I, Jesus did this, that though I am suffering things that I don't deserve and that I don't like, I trust in the fact that you are good and that this is what I need to go through right now for whatever reason. And therefore, I'm committing myself to your care even though I'm confused. Who, verse 24, his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. And here gives an answer. When you say, well, why am I going through the things that I'm going through? Listen, listen, listen. Do you know that it might be for someone else? That's the example that Jesus gives to us. He suffered, and he embraced that suffering, but the suffering wasn't for him. He was doing it because it was necessary for someone else. And he's saying that we have been given this example. And therefore, the solution in our moments of difficulty is that we are to not play the victim, but rather we're to accept what it is that God has placed us in in the time, this time of our life for his reason. The third and final error that Jacob makes in this whole thing is that Jacob tries, once he becomes fed up, he tries to now control the situation that he's in. He tries to grab the reins out of God's hand as he realizes, you know what, following God is just going from bad to worse to worse, so give me the steering wheel for a little while because I certainly can do better in this situation than God can do. Notice what he does. Notice in chapter 43, verse 1. It says that the famine was sore in the land, and it came to pass, when they had eaten up the corn which they had brought out of Egypt, that their father said unto them, Go again and buy us a little food. Now, I wonder how long did it take for them to eat up the corn that was provided by Joseph, you know, and that they brought back. I have a family of seven. They had a family of about 12, plus the four wives, plus the servants. I think it was the same day. Maybe a day later, they're out. It's gone. Costco trip, the receipt, you know, the, the one that, you know, it, it, it's, this is bad, you know. But Judah, verse 3, spoke unto him, saying, The man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, You shall not see my face except your brother be with you. If you will send our brother with us, then we will go and buy you food. But if you will not send him, then we will not go down. For the man said unto us, You shall not see my face except your brother be with you. And Israel said, Wherefore or why have you dealt so ill with me as to tell the man whether you had yet a brother? Didn't you have the foresight to know this would be a disaster when you said that? Totally irrational. And they said, The man asked us straightly of our state, of our kindred, saying, Is your father yet alive? Have you another brother? And we told him, according to the tenor of these words, could we certainly know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said unto Israel his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. For I will be surety or assurance for him. Of my hand shall you require him, if I bring him not unto thee and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. He doesn't say you can kill my kids, but he says you can lay upon me this great shame. I'll bear the reproach of it. Essentially, uh, I'd yield any chance I might have of the birthright, which ultimately will go to him. You know, he says I yield it up in this whole thing. Jacob tries to control this situation. How? By trying to make it go his way. He says, I am not under any circumstances letting Benjamin out of my sight. He grabs a hold of something and he says, I'm not going to let go of this in this circumstance, in the situation that, I, that I'm in. 
and, and the whole thing. Now, think about Jacob here and the position that he's in. Because Jacob has a legitimate responsibility. He has a responsibility to provide for his household. He's the man that everyone is looking on. That's a responsibility that God has laid into his hand. He also has a responsibility to protect Benjamin and all of his family. That would be his place. He's the covering over his sons. So these things are his responsibility. But what he does now is when he has conflicting responsibilities, in other words, I can't do both of these things, he says, I'm going to control how this all goes down. So come what may, hell or high water, Benjamin is not going down to Egypt. And what Jacob does here, he makes a mistake that you and I have a tendency to make, is that he crosses the line from responsibility to control. Now, we have all been given by God responsibilities. They differ according to our calling, our place of life, our gender, whatever, you know, situation that we're in. But there are responsibilities, the, the gifts and talents, the, the money that we have, the jobs that we have, the families that we oversee, the marriages that we have to maintain. We have responsibilities and things that are expected of us in the middle of all that. And that's a responsibility that's come from God. But what we don't have is we don't have control over all of those things. Because there are variables that affect all of those responsibilities that are outside of our hands. Things like a famine. Things like my spouse has copped an attitude. Things like, you know, you fill in the blanks. Other things happen that we don't have any control over. And what our temptation is, is that in the middle of a chaotic situation, we cross over from responsibility and we try to grab the reins of control in a situation and make things happen the way that we want to. And that's the error that Jacob is making in this situation, is that he's trying to control the whole thing in it. And it's, I don't blame him. You know, I'd probably want to do the same thing. But when we try to control, when God says release everybody dies. And that's really the point. <laughs> because Jacob can't control this. It's outside. God holds the higher lever. It's given to us right there in verse 1. It says that the famine was sore in the land. It's not going away. Jacob says, we'll ride this thing out. God says, oh, no, you're not. I'm in control. You're not in control. So what's the solution? When we're tempted to control, what's the solution for Jacob who's tempted to control? The answer to it is surrender. Surrender. Now listen, as long as you and I try to control a situation, God withdraws his hand. Because two people don't drive the same car. It's a principle we've talked about quite a bit. And if you and I insist on having our way in a given thing, God will allow us to have our way in the given thing. Only what we lose is time. We gain nothing. So Jacob watches the resources dwindle. The famine doesn't end. Things don't change. But he has dug in his heels. He said, no, Benjamin is not going there. Well, God wants Benjamin to go there. You say, how does this relate to you and I? This whole concept and idea of responsibility and control and chaos and complicated problems. Listen, you're in a situation, you may find yourself in a marriage. You might be married to an abusive spouse. You have an abusive husband. And in that situation, you have the responsibility of providing for your kids because you're one of their parents. At the same time, you also have the responsibility of protecting your kids and looking out after your own protection when you're in that situation. And because you have a responsibility to provide and your provision comes from an abusive spouse to leave is to neglect your responsibility of providing for your kids in a safe way. And so you feel like, I can't do that. But if you, leave, or if you don't leave the situation, now you're compromising your role of protector because you're subjecting your kids and yourself to someone who is abusive and you're in an abusive situation. So to stay, now you're compromising your responsibility to protect. So now you've got a problem. You might be in a situation where you have a boss that's just a tyrant where your career, your work is hell, where you, would, you hate it, you hate going, everything is just chaos, it's horrible, the situation that you're in. 
but you've got nowhere to go. So if you leave that situation, then you're neglecting your responsibility to provide for your family. But if you stay there, you're losing yourself moment by moment as your soul is being eroded by the situation and the thing that you're in. So how do we do this? What do we do when we get into a situation like Jacob where to do one thing is to leave one responsibility, to do another thing is to leave another responsibility, and I'm not supposed to control this thing. God's controlling it. What do I do? How do I get out of this situation? Here's the answer. Here's what we're to do. What does trust and surrender look like in this? Here it is. Listen, we are to, in these things, actively lean upon God moment by moment for his leading and direction. That's number one. That one's, we're good, okay, good so far, you got me. But here's number two, this is one we don't like so much. Is that in that place of leaning upon God in every moment, we are to be open to all options and outcomes. This is where we often fail. Open to all outcomes and options. Okay, God, I will trust in you and lean on you and hang on to you in this but I will not let Benjamin go down there. I will not let you soften my heart and love this person who's treating me this way. I will not commit to ride out the storm even if it's the rest of my life. I will not, and do you see what we're doing there? We are leaning on God. Well, God, I'm trusting you, and I'll wait for you to come through in this thing, but it's going to go down this road, or else I'm out. God withholds. And the famine goes on. Why? Because we have to trust him and lean on him in the moment by moment for his leading. But we must be open for him to control the outcomes. God needs him in Egypt. And you and I aren't smart enough to foresee and forecast where God wants us, what he's doing, and how things are going to roll out. And therefore, he calls us to be open to all options and outcomes, even if they're the ones that today we don't like or expect. I had a situation um, several months back where I have this old Chevy Astro van. And I took it for an inspection, you know, because it was way overdue. And I brought it in, and as I was there, I went to the place that checks the least, because that's what we do when we find one, you know. And they came in and they said, you have a fuel leak. You have a fuel line leaking. We don't know where it is. It's above the gas tank, but you failed your inspection. We don't repair cars. We just inspect cars. So we can't give you an inspection sticker. So I went out and I noticed that they ripped off the sticker that was in the window. And I, and I said to the guy, I said, did, did you have to rip off the sticker that was in the window? Because I don't have time to, to, to do this right now. I, I don't have time for a fuel line. This is not in my plan. This is just not good what you just did to me. Why did you? And these guys are like, sorry, you know, whatever, and I'm out the door. So because I was strapped for time and desperate and needed both the vehicle and an inspection, I drove to the expensive place because that was the closest place. And so I pulled it in. I said, hey, could you look at this? I said, yeah, we'll get around to it. And, you know, I, I had my wife pick me up and she just drove me home. You know, and I thought, ah. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm just going to pay whatever it costs. It's at the expensive place. I'm just going to have to eat it and deal with it because this is just life right now. You know? And that was in my mind how things are going down. They're going to fix it. It's all done. That afternoon, I had to pick up my daughter from uh, one of our family friend's houses. And as I was there, I was kind of telling them what was going on. They, didn't, they were like, why are you driving that vehicle? You know, and, all this, and, and I told them what happened. And they said, well, listen, they go, you know, first of all, we have a car that's just sitting here. Do you need a car to use while it's out? It's just been sitting. It's been sitting for weeks. It would be great if someone drove it. And second, we have a mechanic who's just really fair, any way you'd want to use him. And at first I was like, nah, you know, no thanks on the mechanic, but I'll take you up on the car, you know, and use the car. And then what happened is I called the place and said, did you get a chance to look? And they said, no, we're not going to get a chance to look till the morning. So I thought, all right, well, they have a mechanic. Maybe I can. Made a phone call. They you know, so sure enough, that night, my wife and I, we drive the van. It's about a half an hour away. We take it to this guy, and I'm just like, well, whatever. You know, Lord, it's in your hands. So that was on a Monday. Tuesday goes by. Wednesday goes by. I hear nothing from the mechanic. So I call and say, hey, by the way, any chance you had a chance to look at it? And it's, oh, he's got it up on the lift now. It's a real mess under there. We'll let you know. I thought, oh, goodness, real mess under there. That doesn't sound good. 
So then Thursday go by, nothing. I, Friday, nothing goes by. Finally, Friday evening, I get a phone call. The guy goes, oh, man, you wouldn't believe what I've had to do to get to this thing. This is a mess. The thing's rotted out like crazy. I've had to make this and fabricate this, and they don't make this part. And, you're gonna, and I'm going, oh, my goodness, this is insane. You know? So he's like, I'm hoping to have it done by tomorrow morning. And so Saturday morning comes and goes, no phone call, go through the day. Saturday... Saturday night comes, I hear nothing from the guy, and so I'm adding up hours in my mind. I'm going, he had it on the lift on Wednesday. He's digging into all these things. I'm going, this is going to cost me over $1,000, you know, if I'm lucky, you know, to get this thing back uh, on track. That night, Saturday night, I had a dream. Craziest thing, and dreams are just weird, aren't they? But in the midst of the dream, I finally go to pick up my van, and as I'm there, I open up the bill in, in the office of the place, and the bill says... $379. This is in my dream. And I went, <laughs> and then I woke up because it was so unrealistic. <laughs> so it's Saturday morning, or Sunday morning, I come to church. First service comes and goes. It's in between. My phone rings. I'm in my office. So I see. I don't recognize the number. I pick it up, and it's the mechanic. He says, I'm done with your car. You can come and pick it up. I'll be here till 1 o'clock. And I held my breath, and I said, what's the damage? And he goes, it's going to run you. And he goes, $379. It was, it was to the dollar exactly what I saw on the bill in my dream. And I, and I was like, you know, it's like one of the you know, moments in the whole thing, you know. Now, the reason that I share that in the context of this study is because what the Lord showed me through that is what he's able to do, not just in the small things like a bad fuel line on a vehicle, but even in the bigger things and big things that we go through in our lives, when we just go with it, instead of trying to control it. How, how did all of that happen? There was so much involved in it, but it was a moment by moment just being carried in the circumstances and letting God work things out. It involved the body of Christ, people that let me use a car and just gave a word about their mechanic. It was an impulse to just, you know, maybe I won't leave my vehicle there. Maybe I will take it. It was just a thought that came into my mind that I went with at that moment. And sure enough, take it there. Then there was even the supernatural involved. There was a dream where God showed his, his providence and his provision. And there was actually an honest mechanic, which is a miracle, which means the miraculous was involved <laughs> in the whole thing. You know, someone who does what's right. And, and, and I watched that whole experience and I thought, God, it's so good to just trust you. Because even though we don't understand and it takes a little bit longer than we like, you really are able to work out the circumstances in ways that we cannot. And so no matter how chaotic the circumstances are at any given time, the truth of the matter is not that all these things are against me. The truth of the matter is that God is for us, that he's not against us, and he calls us to surrender. I ask you this question by way of closing, and the musicians can come. And I apologize tonight for keeping you a little long, but we are closing. What if, and I'll just give you these application questions. You can wrestle with them yourself. What if God does not meet our expectations because he's wanting to exceed them? Doesn't the Bible say that he does exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or even think? The Bible says that, doesn't it? If God did things according to your expectations and mine, then what room would he ever have to exceed those expectations? See, Jacob would never pray, God, my perfect life right now would be living in the lap of luxury with my son Joseph back at my side. All the family reconciled and things right the way they should be. Live out my golden years with my grandkids on my knee. He would never have prayed that prayer because he didn't think it was possible. In his mind, Joseph was already dead. It happens all throughout the Bible. See, God doesn't meet our expectations because he exceeds our expectations. It's his way. It's what he wants to do. And so I ask you tonight, wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, or wherever you've been, can you surrender before you see the outcome? Can you believe that maybe your life just isn't about you? And that no matter how dire or dark things might seem, he is working it together for your good in the scope of his bigger picture of things. Every Christian life is a photo mosaic. You guys know what a photo mosaic is? You ever seen those pictures where you see like a picture, but that picture is made up of like millions of tiny pictures? And somehow the colors are just arranged in a certain way that if you zoom out far enough, you see a bigger picture. 
That's what every one of our lives is. God is concerned with the micro of your life. And he's working everything for your good. But at the same time, God is placing that life, your life, into this great mosaic that makes a much bigger picture of his greater purpose. And what he calls you and I to do is to trust him, to wait patiently, to see his outcome, and rather than to complain or to cry out, to simply say, I don't see the full picture yet, and to trust him in it and for us. And so tonight from Jacob, we learn a valuable lesson from this prince with God. He is working all things together for good. And he's working all things together for your good right now. He loves you. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And we just pray that you would write it upon our hearts. Oh, Lord, we commit every part of our lives to you. And we ask you, Lord, to help us. Help us. Whether it's control issues, lack of surrender, lack of trust, despair, Oh, Lord, help us. Teach us. And we pray that you would work in us, Lord, exceeding abundantly above what we could ask or think. What adjustments might need to be made in our thinking or our walking or our believing tonight, we ask that you would make those changes and you'd help us to just let go. Let peace, let the peace of God be upon your people tonight. The peace that passes understanding, that it would guard our hearts and our minds through Christ who loves us. You would lift up your countenance upon us, Lord. Give us peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand.